Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5. And this morning we return to this fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel as we look further into this great sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be here for quite some time, but that's all right because Matthew is one of the most important books of the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament, and it has foundational teachings that carry through all the rest of the Scripture, and just some very basic things that you need to know are found there as you study God's Word. And likewise, Matthew is a first book, and if you can get Matthew under your belt, then you're well on your way to understanding the real heart and core of the gospel of Christ. And I don't think that we can say it any more clearly or see it any more clearly than in the section that we're studying today, because here we find some very basic information that sets the ship right on how a person can be right with God. And the problems that Jesus attacks in this particular part of the Scripture and throughout the Sermon on the Mount are those that have plagued all of us or plagued all of human history concerning the matter of how a person can be right with God. Man believes that there is a way he can be right with God, but the vast majority of people in the world are lost, and they have a wrong view of how that you can become righteous. And so what we tend to do is that we judge people wrongly about who is righteous and who is not. We are estimating usually the value of people, whether it's spiritually or physically, not by what we can see on the inside, but by what we see on the outside. And that's because we don't have the ability to judge the inside. God does. And in fact, that's the only criteria by which God judges. We can be fooled by outward appearances, but God is never fooled by them. It reminds me of the story of Job in the Old Testament, that when God allowed him to be tested and God had taken away his family, his family was gone, his possessions were gone, his health was gone, there were friends of his, so-called, who came in to counsel with Job, and they were there supposedly to comfort him. But when they began to talk with Job, what they did was they judged him to be an unrighteous person. They saw the things that were happening in his life, and they thought that there is no way that he could be righteous with God in his heart. But they were judging Job wrongly because they couldn't see the inside. But God can see the inside, and he judged Job rightly. And in a sense, the, what Job's friends did was sort of a test of them as well. God knows the heart, and they judged him wrongly. And so we're always looking at outward appearances, but outward appearances can fool us. They throw us off track. And so whether we judge a person righteous or unrighteous, the outward appearance, what that person does, who he claims to be, doesn't always tell us the story. Now, this is what confronted Jesus when he came teaching and preaching in Galilee. And he was about to set the people straight on what it takes to be righteous. What is righteousness? Does it consist of the rules that you keep? Is it a certain standard that you live by or... Is it something different? Is it something much deeper than that? And that's what we're going to discuss today. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we look at our Scripture verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 20. Matthew 5, verse number 20. Jesus says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed 
the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you once again today, we thank you for your mercy, your love, and your grace. And we praise you, Lord, that you have made a way that we can become righteous, that we can become right with you. And that way is through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. Speak to us through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're back to this verse once again today. And you may be thinking, well, why are we back to Matthew 5, verse 20? Haven't we had enough of this? I mean, haven't we talked enough here about what Jesus has to say about righteousness? And why don't we just move on to the next section now and let's discuss something different. Well, in fact, we're never going to move from this particular verse as we go through the Sermon on the Mount because all the rest of it, chapters 5, 6, and 7, are just an expansion of what Jesus says in this verse. This is that bombastic, gut-wrenching statement that Jesus made that made the hearts of the people fall right down into their stomachs. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds, unless it surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case, or in other words, there is no way that you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm using this verse today, just as Jesus did, to introduce this next part of the Sermon on the Mount. From verses 21 down through verse number 48, Jesus gives six principles that set the record straight on the proper interpretation of God's law. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to discuss all of these principles. And what we'll see here is that the law is more than just a concise statement. The law is more than just a line item. There's a spiritual response to God's law that's deeper. And you haven't really found out and you haven't really interpreted God's law correctly until you see the spiritual nature of what the law teaches. So we're going to begin with this today. Number one is two important questions. There are two important questions that have to be asked as we define this section and we get our thinking straight here about what Jesus is trying to teach. And I think that there are many people who read this portion of the Sermon on the Mount and they're very confused about what Jesus is trying to get across. This first question concerns the erroneous teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's a fundamental problem of righteousness. And the Pharisees taught it one way and Jesus taught it a different way. And so the first question is, What do the Scriptures actually say? What do they actually say? I know that covers a lot of territory. Uh, The reason we have Baptists on our sign out front and somebody else has Methodists and somebody else has Presbyterian or Assemblies of God, it really comes down to this question right here. What do the Scriptures actually say? And we differ on what the Scriptures actually say. Now, some people say, well, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what they say. I mean, we're all Christians, aren't we? But I happen to be one of those preachers who thinks it matters greatly what the Bible actually says. Now, this is a major problem that Jesus faced with the scribes and Pharisees. All of their differences really came down to this. What do the Scriptures actually say, and what do they mean? If the Pharisees were right about the Scripture, then there wouldn't have been any argument. If they were right about it, then they would have agreed with Jesus, and the whole point that we're discussing would be moot. They would have believed rightly, and they would do rightly. 
Now, some of you that attend our services on Wednesday night know that we have a motto for studying through the epistles. And our motto is that right doctrine yields right practice. And so here we have Jesus versus the Pharisees, and it's wrong doctrine yields wrong practice. It does matter what the Scriptures actually say. Now, let me try to explain the problem to you. We've discussed this briefly in previous sermons, but let me see if I can give you another picture of, of the problem here. The difficulty lies in the things that were added to the Scriptures. The Scriptures were padded, you might say, by all these teachings of the Pharisees. Now, the tendency in just about every religious system is to develop a system of self-righteousness. If you read the Bible and you see that the standard that God says for you to keep is too high of a standard, then what you do is you set about to make the standard lower in order that you can keep it. So you develop a new standard that you're able to keep. So you develop a standard of righteousness that actually meets your righteousness. You set the bar so high and you're able to attain that particular place, and that becomes your new standard. What the Pharisees had done, they had developed a way of getting around God's law, just sort of dancing around it, uh, getting maybe somewhat close to it, but just dancing around it, only getting so far, and then calling the place that they were able to get to the way of righteousness. And they had done that for so long and for so many years that they had their doctors of the law who became experts, not in what the Bible actually said, but experts in all the things that they had added. And so they weren't actually interpreting the Bible. They were just interpreting the things that they had added to Scripture. And so when anyone would ask them and ask them to explain, well, how can you be right with God? Well, they weren't fond of going to the Scriptures. And so what they would do is they would go to rabbi so-and-so or doctor so-and-so, and and they would say, well, this is what the rabbi says, or this is what the doctor of the law says about it. And so they began to use each other to back one another up on their different interpretations. It was sort of like this argument that you have over evolution in the age of the earth. The paleontologist uses the geologist to date his fossils, by the age of the rocks. And the geologist uses the paleontologist to date his rocks by the age of the fossils. And so you have everybody chasing their tails and going around in circles. And that's T-A-L-E-S as well as T-A-I-L-S. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones has an excellent comment on this problem as he compares the Jewish man's inability to understand Scripture and what happened during the Protestant Reformation. Now, before the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church always conducted their services in Latin. There was no Bible that the people could read. There was no Bible that had been translated into the common language of the people. And so the people were dependent upon the priest to interpret the Scriptures for them. One of the most significant blessings that came out of that Reformation was that the Bible was translated into the language of the people. Now, the Roman Catholic Church strenuously resisted that, and they even put to death those who would try to translate Scripture so that people could understand them. And what their point was, was to try to keep people ignorant of the Bible and dependent upon them for the interpretation. And so the people really had no way to evaluate what they were hearing. They couldn't read the Bible. 
They couldn't understand Latin any more than I can understand Russian. And so the priest could tell them whatever they wanted to tell them. Well, there was a similar circumstance that existed with the Jews in Jesus' time. Hundreds of years had passed since they returned from the Babylonian captivity, and they had lost the language. Most of them really couldn't understand Hebrew, and for the most part, the scriptures were written in Hebrew. So by the time that Jesus came, the people were speaking Aramaic, and it's most likely that Jesus taught in Aramaic, and that was really just a variation of the language of Babylon. Now, if you remember, when Nehemiah... Uh, returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, he was very distraught at what he found with the people. And this is what he writes in Nehemiah 13, verse number 23. In those days also saw I Jews that married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. So here was this problem of the people mixing up with heathens, and they were losing God's language, the language of the Bible. And so the Jewish people had no way to verify what the scribes and the Pharisees said. They're the ones who are the doctors of the law. They're the ones who know how to interpret. They're the ones who understand Hebrew. And so the people depended on them to tell them what Scripture said. But what the people were getting was not the Bible. They were getting Pharisee. They were getting all of the laws and commands that the Pharisees had added And they didn't know what the scriptures scriptures actually meant or what they said. Now that brings us to important question number two. Who has the authority to interpret? Now here's where things start to get sticky because it's Jesus versus the Pharisees. It's his view of scripture versus their perversion of scripture. So it's his way of righteousness versus all the rules that the Pharisees had put in place. Now, remember, the scribes and the Pharisees like to back each other up. They claimed to be the authority, so they used each other to to tell what the Scriptures actually meant. But Jesus does something very different here, because what he does, he doesn't appeal to Rabbi Johnson. He doesn't appeal to Rabbi Smith. He goes about it in a different way. Now, we're going to look at these six statements that... Jesus makes from verses 21 to 48. And I want you to notice here how the, how the pattern is similar. Now, if you look at verse number 21, Jesus says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Verse number 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Verse number 31. It hath been said... 
Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Verse number 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Verse number 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then verse number 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So do you see there? Six times, Jesus starts with their interpretation of the law, and then he says, but I say. Now, you might want to underline that in your Bible. But I say, because what Jesus did, he appealed to no one else. He didn't go to the rabbis. He didn't look for any other authority. He just said, but I say. Now, there are many people that wrongly interpret this. They they think that Jesus is taking the Old Testament and he's changing it. Here, the Old Testament law says this, but Jesus is saying that's not right. Moses says this, but otherwise, as if what Jesus is doing is correcting Moses. But that's not what this means. He's already told us in verse number 17, he didn't come to destroy Moses or the prophets. So let's look at verse 21 again. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. By them refers to the Pharisees and not to Moses. The Pharisees said this, but I'm telling you otherwise. And so what Jesus does, he takes the authority upon himself. And he's not merely saying it's me versus them. He's taking the authority as God. He is equal in authority with God. And he says, this is how the scriptures are to be interpreted. And so this is not merely a simple statement like Jesus says, I'm going to debate this with you. Here's what they say, but I have a little bit different interpretation of it. And so you decide which you think is best. No, this is Jesus saying, I am the authority. Because whatever Moses said, I am the one who told him to say it. Jesus is simply saying here, I am the lawgiver. I am the one who gave it to Moses first. And so I have the authority to tell you what it means. Now, do you remember this scripture, what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 58? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham was before Moses, of course. And so when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, he gave him his name. God said, I am that I am. That's God's name. And Jesus says, that is my name. I am. And so Jesus is the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. It was Jesus who thundered out the law on Mount Sinai and gave it to Moses. Now let me drop back to what we were discussing in that first question. Before the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church was adding many, many erroneous doctrines to the Scriptures. And when they got through, 
they had a perverted gospel. Now, essentially, they had no gospel at all because what they have is a system of works and not of grace. So they misrepresented the gospel of Christ and all of these interpretations and additions that they've made to the word of God. Well, the people gobbled up that false salvation. Nobody could read the Bible. The priests were doing it for them. And so it took men like Luther and Calvin to pull out that real gospel. And Roman Catholicism still perverts the true gospel of Christ. Now, it's the very same thing that we see here with the Pharisees. They had this false system of salvation, and the people gobbled it up because they weren't able to verify the Scriptures by reading it for themselves. Now, Jesus stands against them. And as the authority, as God Almighty, he's going to set the record straight about what the Bible actually teaches. So those are two very important questions. What do the Scriptures actually say? And who has the authority to interpret them? And if you get that answer right, then everything else begins to fall into place. Now, I want to move on to the second part of the message because this is not just what about happened then. There is an application here for us. And so what I want to give you are five basic applications. And if you want to call them implication, that's all right. Five basic applications that follow in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm going to be brief with these. We're not going to explain it in detail because these things will pop up again all the way through the rest of Jesus' sermon. So five basic applications. Righteousness versus rules. What's the difference? And how did what Jesus teach differ from what the Pharisees taught? What does that mean to us? Now, the first application that we can make is that the letter of the law kills but the spirit of the law gives life. The Pharisees loved the letter of the law. They were concerned that if you do A, then B will result. If you do C, then D will result. And so they just kept adding all these laws and trying to obey laws as if this is a mechanical process. It's just like pulling levers and turning gears. You get this machine in motion, and it chugs along and outspits the results. Now, what that did was to bog them down in the rules where they got a very narrow focus on the rules that they kept rather than the meaning behind those rules. I think that's a problem with many ministries today. They keep focusing on the rules rather than looking at the inward person. And so what they do is they end up judging everybody by the rules. And it really doesn't matter what's going on in the person's heart. And if you ever get free from that kind of system, you'll never want to go back to it because it's restricting and miserable. And so people begin to rejoice in their salvation in one sense in, their, in those systems. They rejoice in this, that they have become acceptable. They become acceptable where? In the eyes of the preacher and acceptable in the eyes of other people, of their peers. Now, when the Pharisees said this, we're okay because we don't kill people. And Jesus said, that's not enough. You've missed the whole point. The idea behind this is the attitude that you have towards people has to be one of love. Not killing a person is just an illustration that you're supposed to love him. That's the interpretation of the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. And so, therefore, if you hate your brother, even if you don't kill him, you've still broken the law. You get the right spirit and you find out that God's law becomes liberating. 
Now, next, the next application is that attitude is more important than actions. And this one might be a little bit harder to see, but it's basically this. What caused you to do what you did? How did you get there? Most of you are probably not going to kill anybody, I hope. So let's take this second one in verse number 27. The Pharisees said, don't commit adultery. Now, while they refrained from the act, they were wishing all the time that there was no law against it, that the law didn't forbid them. So what they had was a lot of lust in their hearts. Now, if they did commit the act, what was it that got them there? It's a lust, isn't it? I mean, the lust is the real root of the sin, so that means there's something wrong inside the heart. So if you don't commit the act, has it fixed your heart? Well, of course, the answer is no. The sin is still there. And so Jesus says, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Your attitude is more important than the action because it was your attitude that determined the sin. So do you understand that? The action is bad, but you haven't changed your heart just by not doing the action. Now, let me expand on that just a little bit with the next one. Doing right is as important as not doing wrong. Now, here's where, again, a lot of ministries go wrong. They think they're okay because they stop doing bad things. You know that saying, I don't, I don't smoke, I don't cuss, I don't chew, I don't go with the girls who do. And so their ministries are built around all these things of what they don't do rather than the things that they do do. Now, I, I love this illustration that John MacArthur gives. He was talking about uh, attending a very strict rules-oriented Bible college. And he said there were so many rules that you couldn't read all the rules in a year. There were books and books of rules. So he tells this story about a young man that he knew that was called before the high tribunal of the school. And they told him that he had broken a cardinal rule. He committed a terrible faux pas because he'd been seen leaving the campus with a girl in his car. Now, somebody was watching, and they reported that he left the campus with a blonde in a blue dress. And in that school, you couldn't get in a car with a girl. You couldn't leave the campus in your car because that was breaking a rule of the highest magnitude. Well, it turns out that the young man defended himself, and he said, I wasn't leaving with a blonde in a blue dress. That was my blue laundry bag, and there was a yellow towel that was hanging out. But it was too late. The damage had already been done. The rumors were out there. They got around. Here's somebody who broke the rules, and so his reputation was ruined. Now, that's the way many ministries are. They're Pharisees. They don't do anything wrong. I mean, God forbid that they'll ever break the rules. But they focused on that instead of doing what's right. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the ultimate purpose of the law is not to prevent us from doing certain things that are wrong. Its real object is to lead us positively, not only to do that which is right, but to also love it. Now, is that your attitude? Do you love doing things for the Lord? Do you love to go to church? Do you love to worship? Do you love Scripture? Do you love teaching other people about Christ? Or have you taken the backdoor approach to Christianity? And that's the way many people do. They take the back door instead of the front door. Now, the front door is the positive side. The back door is negative. And what you need to be very careful about doing is not backing into your service by default. It's the wrong approach 
to start out with the negative to become sanctified and holy. Holiness and righteousness is when you enter into the Christian life positively, letting Christ clean up your life as you live for Him. You're sanctified daily as you live for Him. And then all the excess baggage and things that you shouldn't do are automatically shed. Now the fourth one, the fourth application, is that the law was not given to cramp your style, but to free your spirit. These applications are building each other as we go along, and each one takes off from the other. So if you look at God's laws as a list of do's and don'ts, then what happens is you feel sewed up. It's like living every day in a straitjacket. You're always worried. Did I step over the line here? Did I go too far there? And in some places, in some ministries, what do they do? They take out the ruler, and they measure whether your hair is too far over your ears or over your collar. They make the girls kneel down on the floor and they measure up to see if the hem is the acceptable half inch or the inch above the knee. And that is identical to the Pharisees who had found their standard. And they debated the standard. Things like how far can you walk on the Sabbath? Can you cook on the Sabbath? Is it okay to eat or just fix to eat just what you need to survive? Or could you go a little bit further? Could you unwrap a Twinkie for dessert? And they had a rule for all of that. And so pretty soon you're surrounded by so many rules that all you can ever do is focus on rules. It's restrictive and confining. And God's law was never intended to do that to you. God's law is never supposed to be a a yoke of bondage. So you see, when we trust Christ, we actually become free in him because the law is designed to drive us to him. We find liberty at the cross. And when your heart is changed... You never served God out of an unwilling heart. The apostles were all agreed about this. They did say this. They said, we are bond servants of Christ, but they never meant that they were sewed up and restricted in serving God only because they'd been beaten into submission. They served Christ willingly. They wanted to be a slave. They wanted nothing else than to be a slave because there was joy in serving the Lord. So I'm telling you that if you come to the place that what you do is you serve preachers and you serve churches and you serve the college, whatever it is, and you want to serve them to their satisfaction, then you will never serve God to your satisfaction enjoying it. It's always going to be a chore. It's always drudgery. Now, finally, we come to the last application of the text, and this brings us full swing to what is expressed explicitly rather than implicitly. Now, we're talking about implicit things here uh, in these first four, things that are inferred by the keeping of the law. But what is the explicit statement of Jesus in John, or rather Matthew 5, verse 20? Well, his explicit statement is, you must be perfect to please God. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount will show them that whatever standard the Pharisees had, it was not good enough. Whatever standard they imposed, it was not God's standard and would never be high enough. Now, even these high and mighty Pharisees, they would never have claimed the perfection of God. If they'd said that, It would have amounted to blasphemy. So they're not going to claim the perfection of God. And so what they did do was proclaim their perfection in their own system. 
They were thinking about all the rules that they kept. And they just kept coming up with more and more rules, oh, more laws. And that's because once you get started in rules, there isn't any place to stop. Perfection is never really attained in that system because even if you keep all of the rules that are in place, you've only kept the latest set of rules. There's always another rule to be made. That standard is way too low for God. He demands perfection And the perfection that God demands is his own defined perfection. So no matter how hard you try, you can't be perfect as God is perfect, which means that you're never going to please him. So what do you need? You need God's perfection. And the simple truth of it is, it's not available in any human system. It's fundamentally different than anything that we could ever come up with. And so what God says, I will make you perfect. If you want to please me, I'm not going to let anything you do please me. He said, I'm going to please myself by giving you my perfection. I will give you my perfection, and the only way that you're ever going to get it is by faith in the blood of my Son. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Everything that you do to please God did not originate in you. It started in God. He's the one that gives us our faith. He's the one who enables and facilitates faith by his action and not yours. And so, in essence, your work for him is actually his performance in you. Philippians says this in Philippians 1 verse 6, Being confident of this very that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 2 verse 13, it says, It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so the logical conclusion is the Spirit will give you life. Your attitude will be right for all of your actions. You will hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you will positively do right. And you won't feel restricted. You won't feel cramped when you do it. You'll serve him, and you'll serve him joyfully. Now the question then is, how is your heart? your heart pure and clean? Have you received Christ by faith? He's the only one who can change the heart and make it right. He's the only one who can make you perfect. So there are two important questions. What do the scriptures actually say? Who has the right to interpret them? And the one who speaks here is Jesus Christ, who is God Almighty. He is the authority, and he will tell us what they mean and what that means to us. We must come to him because he has all the answers about how to be righteous with God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we're indeed thankful again for Jesus Christ, who is the perfection of God, who is the authority of God, who is God himself. And we thank you, Lord, that he came into this world to give us the perfection that is required, the only perfection by which we can see you. And it comes by faith in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I ask you that you would speak to hearts today. Help us that we might understand that Christ is all of our sufficiency. He is all in all. We cannot serve you except through him. And I just pray, Lord, you might speak to our hearts and draw us through salvation. Draw us that we might be closer to you if we already know you as Savior. That we might recognize that you are the one who is the lawgiver and that we'll serve you joyfully, 
by you working through our lives to make us like you. Bless in this time of invitation. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.